We're back, continuing the discussion on France's forever war. Here's Philip talking to Yvonne Guichard. So I'm curious a bit, um, you know, one thing that is kind of uh, striking with the forever war in the US and the UK is that it's simply become kind of part of the um, part of the background. You know, so it's not something like you say, which kind of is very rarely, you know, like with the scenes with the fall of Kabul, that it kind of erupts into public consciousness and public awareness. But generally, it's just something which is um, accepted by the public in the background. And you'd say this is, would this be the same in France, that it's something which is just kind of uh, background kind of mood music in a way, and then it only matters when there is casualties and that's it. Yes, I fully endorse your perspective on this. And well, honestly, I'm I'm not that much interested in what is going on in France. <laughs> um, my my whole interest for the region uh, has to do with the political trajectory of of the Sahel and um, the fate of the people living there. Uh, the protection of civilians in this um, conflict, and so uh, if if yeah, it's it's very saddening uh, for me to 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 realize like the the lack of interest uh, by um, the, the French public about what is going on there because the humanitarian situation is absolutely. Uh, uh, dramatic, but it's it's considered a sort of uh, yeah permanent situation um, that makes the news for the most uh, dramatic um, uh, events, but um, which is completely absent from um, the media the rest of the um, time. And um, something also that needs to be stressed is that even though the name Barkan is not in use anymore the French still have uh, thousands of military deployed yeah. outside Mali in the Sahel and particularly in Niger. And so I wanted, I wanted to ask you about this. So what is the kind of the, what is the kind of uh, the map look like now that the operation is formally over? The, the operation in Mali is formally over. The new slogan put forward by the French is that um, we are, a, we are, the French are a security provider. And so we operate on demand. If the countries in West Africa feel threatened by the jihadist expansion. And so it's a way to say, well, we're here to help basically, but the first move has to come from uh, the coastal countries because um, there are like legitimate worries that um, jihadist uh, operations will now increasingly target the coastal countries, so, such as Benin, Côte d'Ivoire, Togo, Ghana. Uh, so uh, the French are ready to uh, deploy special forces there. Uh, and they stay very heavily in Niger because uh, they consider Niger as their logistical hub. And, and so um, they operate uh, in Niger, but they adopt a sort of uh, more discreet uh, profile. So it's not the end at all of uh, French military interventionism in the region, but the language, the narrative, the way it is, the French presence is publicized is um, changing. But I, I doubt that operationally, this idea of letting 
the um, Sahelian countries or West African countries like make the first move, then call the French. I doubt that this operationally can work because <laughs> the French military have like routines that tend to be a bit one-sided, right? Uh, they, when they operate somewhere, they want their norms uh, to um, be in place and military activities are highly codified, right? So um, it's the norms of the French, uh, I think that will eventually prevail. So you've mentioned how dire the humanitarian situation is. Um would you be able to give us a brief overview of what the, you know, if there's a way to summarize the legacy of nearly 10 years of French military intervention and um, direct involvement in the region, what is the current state of the conflict? And, you know, what is the, um, I mean, what is the situation for kind of ordinary Malayans throughout the country? Um, you know, just a kind of a picture of where we're at now that the operation is formally over. Well, if you take the situations um, in Niger, in Burkina Faso, and uh, in Mali, in terms of um, violent incidents and uh, uh, fatalities, this year, this ongoing year, uh, 2022, is the worst since the um, war started in uh, 2012 and followed by the French operation in 2013. Um, it's also the worst um, in terms of victimization of civilians. Why? Because Sahelian armies um, have a great propensity to uh, perpetrate atrocities. And it was, in fact, part of the uh, French agenda and all sorts of uh, security sector reform uh, initiatives to somehow... Um, make Sahelian armies more aware of issues such as international humanitarian law, uh, protection of civilians. And these, these have failed quite dramatically. Another big game changer in the case of Mali has been uh, the uh, deployment of uh, Wagner uh, mercenaries and who themselves uh, have perpetrated horrific atrocities. The worst one being an attack against a village in central Mali that happened in March 2022. And for about four days, the uh, Malian troops with the Wagner mercenaries um, rounded up uh, the population of the village and killed about 350. I mean, the death toll is obviously not official, not even recognized by the Malian authorities, but they killed about 350 uh, civilians and perhaps uh, or something like 50 jihadists that were uh, in the middle. But this has been a major massacre, still not recognized by the authorities, still not investigated fully by the peacekeeping mission. Uh, and in the case of uh, Burkina Faso, even though you don't have um, um, mercenaries from the Wagner group uh, operating, you have uh, um, I mean, a, a process of militarization of the society has been put in place, consisting of arming civilians through uh, vigilante groups. And the vigilante groups and the army uh, have perpetrated uh, atrocious uh, killings as well, um, and causing the displacement of 2 million people. So 2 million internally displaced people 
just uh, in Burkina Faso. And on their uh, end, the jihadists have also carried out all sorts of uh, horrific operations. Since many localities have formed um, self-defense groups, sometimes encouraged by the states, the uh, jihadists have used massive coercive powers and violence to somehow uh, stop these uh, initiatives. And that's really a part of their politics to punish extremely violently the civilians that want to resist. Uh, and they've used um, economic weapons for that, for example. They have besieged localities, used economic blockades. And that's something um, that I'm, I was not so much interested in initially. Uh, I've been studying political violence uh, for a while. And that's the first conflict I'm um, directly following where uh, such a systematic use of economic weapons uh, happens in the form of blockades, in the form of burning fields of cereals, in the form of killing cattle. Uh, th there have been like horrific videos circulating of uh, horses, uh, donkeys being systematically killed by the jihadists uh, as a way of punishment for villages that uh, wanted to resist their presence. So that's the situation right now. And if you look at uh, the map of the jihadist expansion, uh, it shows um, a, a magnitude of um, geographical presence that um, uh, is absolutely unique uh, since the, 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 the conflict started uh, and the crisis started in 2012. Uh, the, the, the jihadist presence has never been so um, large geographically uh, since the beginning of this crisis. That's mm. really, um, really disturbing to hear. Um, just quickly on the question of um, the Russians' involvement. So, I mean, this is something that I found is that, you know, sometimes the kind of conflict has erupted into um, the Anglophone press um, directly connected to, um, you know, where the, the Wagner mercenary group, which has obviously also earned notoriety now because of its involvement more recently in the Ukraine war. Um, but I was wondering, I mean, you've mentioned some of the, you know, some of the factors that led to um, the failure of the French military intervention, the reliance on corrupt socialist government um, uh, bef before the junta, and then also the, um, you know, the reliance on kind of um, uh, brutal ethnic proxy forces and so on. How do you read the Russian military intervention through the Wagner group in all of this? Because, I mean, given how peripheral, or at least I'm assuming, you know, that the theatre, the region is generally peripheral to Russian strategic interests compared to somewhere like Ukraine or Syria. Um, what is the, you know, what is the gain uh, from the Russian point of view in involving themselves in these countries? So at the moment, Wagner is only present in Mali. And they started deploying forces in the end of uh, 2021 and became operational in the beginning of 2022. And they have been very quick at deploying their forces. And if you look at this aspect only, you understand what makes the presence of Wagner attractive for the Malian government in the sense that 
um, they can deploy very, very quickly. Uh, and uh, they only need a few weeks or months uh, to do things that the French uh, were taking like months, if not years, uh, to, to do. So from the perspective of military effectiveness, uh, even though that means also perpetrating a lot of uh, atrocities, uh, but in, in a very cynical way from the perspective of a government who wants to eradicate the jihadist threats with a very, very short-term agenda and um, also um, with all sorts of prejudice about who is complicit with the jihadists. Well, uh, having Wagner works. Now, from a political angle, bringing in the um, Russians um, is just reviving an old relationship that used to exist during the Cold War between Mali and uh, the Soviet Union. So it's not a major novelty or uh, discontinuity in the history of this uh, country. So I think this is uh, important to keep in mind these two aspects, the uh, historical depth of the relationship between Mali and uh, Russia, uh, and also the sort of immediate military gains that the um, Malians make by inviting um, Wagner. Now, from the perspective of Russia, um, I think it's um, interesting to uh, plant little flags in places where the French used to be influential. So from a sort of geopolitical perspective, um, there's, there's definitely a gain here. The uh, Russians and Wagner in particular um, had um, carved out some influence uh, in other parts of Africa before, in Central African Republic, uh, in Sudan, uh, in, uh, in Libya. So um, Mali is just one other country that they can add to their list of uh, partners on the uh, African continent. Uh, and there's the more um, opaque um, aspects of uh, Wagner presence, which has to do with how much money they make because they are paid in a way. Uh, and right now it seems that um, they haven't made, made much money. Uh, and here I'm using the conditional because it's, it's hard to get reliable information about the contact tracks that they sign, sure. um, which mines they have access to, uh, which networks they use to smuggle out some riches and money. I mean, there's plenty to work uh, on, on these issues, but um, it seems that they are still losing money. From a financial point of view, um, they are not making a gain, uh, and the gains they are making right now are mostly uh, political. But this is not necessarily sustainable in the long run. There's a point where they will need to make their efforts economically viable, and that means um, getting access to uh, mineral riches, uh, probably. Um, but well, it's not clear exactly what's, what they have managed to secure um, in, uh, in the case of, um, of, of Mali. So I guess um, at this point, I would like to... Uh, um, I mean, that's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating to hear about the Russian involvement and the Cold War continuity. And you mentioned also the, um, the point about... Uh, how, whether or not you know how far the Russians will need access to um, minerals in order to make it economic, and so I guess that pushes me to think about um, 
prompts me to think about the question of um, whether or not imperialism is a useful analytic construct to understand what's happening. So I remember uh, at the time of the original French intervention in Mali in um, when it was launched under Francois Hollande in 2013, it was... Uh, it was initially, I understood it was justified by the need to ensure access to the sources of uranium, given how dependent France's um, energy infrastructure is on nuclear power, and they needed to ensure source, um, secure supply of uranium. And so this was more or less the understanding of what the intervention was. Um, but more broadly, given the kind of the uh, the picture that you've painted um, and the kind of the extent of French military intervention, the continu continuing French military intervention, the um, historic repeating patterns of reliance on ethnic, um, on local kind of proxy forces as part of counterinsurgency campaign. Um, how useful do you think it is to think or talk in terms of imperialism um, to understand France's relationship with its former empire in the region? Well, I think the economic dimension is not necessarily central to the um, latest form of uh, French interventionism in West Africa. Now, it's clear that it's uh, very disturbing to notice that France has had, uh, um, had a continuous military presence on the continent uh, since uh, the end of uh, World War II. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so that definitely suggests um, some continuity between uh, the colonial past and uh, the present day. Now the motivations for um, being present militarily have, I think, dramatically changed. And also, what France can do and cannot do um, has also. Uh, change like fairly uh, dramatically. So, for example, security, securing access to uh, uranium, to me, is not such an important aspect of the French intervention because uranium is very much located in a fairly tiny part of Niger, and you don't need to uh, deploy like five thousand military over five countries. Yeah. Yeah. just secure one or two mines, which eventually have closed um, because they were not profitable enough. Uh, so now they might reopen, in fact, because uh, of the changes in the um, um, international uh, prices. So the economic explanation has never been very, very satisfactory to me. Um, you mentioned the uh, importance of 9-11 for the US. Well, France had its own 9-11, like the Bataclan, and yeah. it's been uh, a, a permanent feature of the French discourse to say that we were protecting the security of the French people by intervening in the Sahel because the people, the jihadists in the Sahel are the same that killed uh, so many people in Paris and in 2015, which, which, which is wrong, right? Concretely, it's not it's not okay to say that because you never had any fighter from the Sahel eventually crossing the Mediterranean to uh, perpetrate some attacks on the French soil. So um, this, 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 this didn't work um, concretely, empirically as an argument. But I think that was very much the mindset of the French decision makers. The other aspect, which I think is absolutely central, has to do with the, the 
way the French elites see the role of France uh, in the world. And yeah. it's the yeah. sort of uh, politics of grandeur, right? Yeah. Uh, France still wants to see itself as an important nation that counts. And um, being present in the Sahel is um, maintaining some influence Uh, in what is considered uh, France um, um, doorstep or backyard, right? Uh, and the, France event yeah. the, the French eventually persuaded uh, European leaders that the Sahel was also uh, Europe's uh, doorstep. And the um, migration arguments uh, proved very, very powerful uh, as, as a way to convince other European partners to contribute to the security efforts in the Sahel, put a sort of lead on the Sahel to contain uh, the threats of uh, migration that would then destabilize uh, our uh, liberal regimes by uh, propping up uh, the far right. I think that's very much a rationale uh, that guided and drove um, the, uh, the French interventionism in the past years. Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating, and um, it makes a lot of sense to me thinking about kind of the understanding and the rationale for British um, interventionism in the course of the war on terror as well. But I suppose on a similar kind of big picture question, you mentioned at the start that the or you know that you that you understand the kind of the over, some of the overarching dynamics of the conflict in terms of the center periphery uh, question within African in the history of the African post-colonial state. So I wondered if you could summarize again, just briefly, if you could summarize for us kind of where that what is the what does the kind of post-colonial state in the Sahel look like? after years of war years of french military intervention now the um formation of the of kind of jihadi governance jihadi state building um this new kind of political economy of smuggling that you've mentioned as well as the intensive intervention by the united nations in the form of peacekeeping and aid programs what does that state look like in the aftermath of all of that and has it changed that center how has it changed that center periphery dynamic Yeah, I think this is the big question mark. And it's also um, super important to somehow figure out an answer to this question if we hope to see the emergence of a viable form of governance uh, in the coming years uh, and hopefully a peaceful form of governance. What we have right now is bunkerized urban centers protected by international forces uh, or um, the uh, national militaries and hinterlands that are not necessarily fully controlled by the jihadists, but under the influence of the jihadists. The, the jihadists like don't live in the villages, right? They have their own camps, but they come, collect uh, the taxes among villages, uh, give some instructions, women, uh, should wear their veal, uh, men uh, are not allowed to drink, et cetera, et cetera. And they go, right? And they carry out their um, attacks against the, um, the, the military. So 
that's a situation that prevails in most parts of central Mali and northern Mali right now, uh, that prevails in most of Burkina Faso, and that prevails in uh, the area of Niger that is close to the um, Malian uh, border. And so the jihadists really much represent an alternative political offer uh, here. And so we see under our eyes like a competition happening between a form of governance that is worn out uh, based on uh, elections that nobody trusts anymore and a form of governance that is based on coercion, uh, that is uh, super strict, uh, and that the uh, jihadist uh, represents. And then uh, you have like all sorts of international efforts uh, on the side of the states, but which are also reluctant efforts in the sense that there's a, there's a lot of distrust between uh, Western uh, powers uh, and the Donald community uh, and the, um, the leaders of these countries, right? Uh, and, and everyone asking themselves, like, what's the best way to, uh, to, to govern? So I, I don't think that the um, paradigm of um, liberal peace has disappeared, even though I think the belief in its capacity to bring about some sustainable and inclusive forms of governance uh, have um, uh, faded away. So I'm not sure how I can, in fact, answer the your, your, your question. I think there's a form of governance that needs to be reinvented. Um, there's a red line that many actors refuse to cross right now, which is uh, the opening of a dialogue with the jihadists. Now, this competition that I've mentioned between uh, the form of governance promoted by the jihadists and um, the um, classic political actors um, is, is based on like mutually exclusive agendas. But perhaps one way to make some form of uh, governance um, sustainable, I mean, would be to sort of find a compromise, um, have some um, local systems of governance um, based on certain legitimate religious practice, um, um, access to land, for example, um, uh, and, um, and others uh, sets, other sets of norms like based or borrowed from um, more liberal ways of organizing power. I don't know, but um, uh, this dialogue between uh, jihadists and uh, state actors is now mostly concentrating on obtaining uh, truce yeah. and uh, provoking some form of de-escalation of violence with some results locally, but with no clear um, political plan. So I guess that kind of forward uh, or future looking question takes takes me to um, uh, to think about uh, to think about the question also from the French angle. So one thing that has always struck me with Macron, I mean, at least from, you know, from afar, is his uh, his attempt to kind of uh, cast himself as a visionary leader. 
And so he's always doing, you know, these long interviews with The Economist where he's offering his views about European security, about managing relations with Russia, about European strategic autonomy, about the future, you know, and all of these kinds of things. And one thing where he, he seems to have kind of um, tried also to craft like a long term vision is how Europe and how France will relate to Africa in the 21st century. Um, so I was wondering, you know, I mean, how you know, perhaps it's kind of not so in maybe, you know, well, I'm I'm curious, I suppose, to hear. How how do you read Macron's vision for Africa? And where does Africa sit in the Macronist kind of outlook on foreign policy for the future? Yeah, first of all, to react to what you were just saying, I mean, it strikes me always to see this kind of discrepancy between the perception of Macron in France and the perception of Macron in um, Anglo-American media. And as you said, like these interviews with the BBC or with the Financial Times, like giving him um, the status of a visionary leader with like a super structured understanding of <laughs> the geopolitical stakes. Yeah. This, this is to me such a superficial and shallow yeah. Uh, representation of what his rule is about, which I think is really much the rule of communicators. Uh, he 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 acquires or he cultivates the image of an erudite, but he's not, <laughs> and I don't think he has a very solid vision of what the future of the relationship between. Uh, France and Africa should look like. Uh, last year, he organized a summit which was meant to be disruptive between France and Africa. Like in the French uh, foreign policy tradition, you always had summits between the French presidents and um, francophone leaders in Africa. And that was something oh. like um, very, um, yeah, like old fashioned. Uh, and he decided to replace this by a France-Africa summit where only young leaders would be invited, right? And not the heads of states. Yeah. So this was very much resented by the old yeah, I can imagine, um, yeah. leaders from uh, France's client states um, in uh, Francophone uh, Africa. And if you look at the program and what was discussed at uh, these uh supposedly brand new form of uh, summit, it's, it's just like what some people call like technical solutionism, right? Yeah. As if all the issues um, in Africa right now could be solved by an app, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. he invited a lot of tech people uh, to talk about, yeah, technical fixes, to um, problems in Africa. But that's such a narrow understanding of um, the problems of the continents right now. Uh, um, for example, in terms of uh, access to water, like a big infrastructural uh, issues um, uh, th that were completely like left aside, not part of the conversation. So if, if this is the vision that Macron has uh, for the future of the relationship between France and Africa, I think this is a very, very narrow-minded and 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 mistaken um, 
vision uh, of, of, of this uh, relationship. So I don't buy really uh, the idea of uh, Macron as a visionary. Uh, I, I, I think that um, uh, he claims to bring in something new, um, what he wants to cultivate eventually is a form of uh, profitable economic cooperation. That's it. Uh, very much based on liberal ideals uh, consisting of uh, dismantling the state, uh, promoting private actors, uh, uh, startups, etc. Right. Yeah. That's that's it. Mm. Yeah. So it's still kind of um, it's still that kind of liberal that liberal technocratic outlook then as far as foreign policy in Africa is concerned from, from Macron. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And like you say, is very much at odds with the way in which he's presented. Um, I suppose in the Anglophone media presenting him as a visionary is a, is a way to kind of contrast with the, what the Anglophone commentators think is lacking in our own leaders. But, you know, that's by kind of building up a picture of Macron that doesn't actually fit the you know the reality like you say um that takes us i guess to the final question which is um again a big picture one um but you mentioned the you know kind of the uh the shortfall between the kinds of solutions that macron is envision envisioning and the actual kind of problems um that northern northwest africa the sahel confronts and I wondered, you know, if um, given the picture you've portrayed, particularly, like you say, the, the fact that this year the jihadists control more territory on the map than they have done, um, but also just the big, you know, the big questions, demographic, um, the security questions, environmental stresses in the region, and all this against the background of um, political fragility, deep poverty, um, and now also, you know, world economy that seems to be entering a phase of low growth, which will obviously act as a drag on um, on Africa's economic prospects as well. Are there any grounds for optimism um, in terms of uh, what happens in, in the Sahel in sub-Saharan Africa next? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, um, I'm not very much optimistic about the um, situation, if if there's ground for optimism, that may come from perhaps some sections of the civil society that uh, are active in figuring out solutions. But I think their voices are still like very much silenced also because of the authoritarian trend that the regimes are following. So the immediate future looks very, very bleak uh, to me. Uh, if, if you look at the way, for example, the Malian uh, uh, regime uh, is uh, evolving, it's, it's just getting worse by the day uh, in terms of um, silencing uh, free speech, uh, the media, um, the opposition, uh, and so so it's hard to identify a narrative or um, a, a, some forms of collective political mobilization that um, perhaps could bring about some um some 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 positive uh, changes honestly 
um, th that doesn't mean that these people don't exist. We just don't hear them at the moment. And, and, and it's interesting also that from the perspective of the donors and, and those who, unlike France, perhaps have a more altruistic agenda, like the Scandinavians say, um, yeah. they are in permanent search for partners or civil society actors that they could promote, right? And they don't find them. I think it's very difficult uh, to 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 identify, um, yeah, political forces, even nascent political forces, uh, that are not completely embroiled in the super polarized uh, political uh, landscape that we have right now. Yeah. The fact that uh, the Russians are increasingly present in the region means also that a country like France is now calibrating its presence not so much to fight uh, the jihadists, well, they still continue, of course, but now to counter the Russian influence. Yeah. So jihadism per se is in a way a threat largely um, reconstructed by the French to justify their uh, operations. But if you add to this now uh, the Russian presence, that's another reason for being there that does not resonate with the aspirations of the populations. Yeah. Well, it's a dismal note to end on, I guess, but um, uh, such is the way, I guess, with... Um, uh, with so much uh, world politics at the moment, um, but thank you so much, Ivan, for coming on. It's been um, it's been an education for me, and uh, genuinely fascinating um, to hear so much detail as well as so much um, historic and macro perspective on the region. So thank you. Thank you very much, Phil. Washington, do